Radio Mano Papachango. to you from Topanga, California, from my little apartment here. Um, let's see. Those of you who are Patreon supporters uh, may be watching the video of this, which I'm recording in real time. I think this is the first Roma I'm recording on the little Mevo video camera. Uh, by the way, I'm not, I never received anything from Mevo. Mevo, send me some money. What the fuck? Uh, speaking of things uh, that I'm not, companies I'm not sponsored by, my new microphone, which I just bought for the road trip, is the Blue Raspberry. I have a Blue Yeti that I normally use, uh, but I wanted to get something that I could use together with the iPad and the Mevo camera. So this is sort of a test. I uh, hope it sounds okay. I've got headphones on. Sounds all right in my headphones. But I'm sort of checking out to see how the, the sound levels out in the iPad and all this business. So anyway, this is sort of a test, uh, but uh, I hope it sounds all right. Here we go. Uh, things I wanted to talk about in this Roma. Uh, I'm, I'm working on the Rhythmia thing, the Costa Rican thing. Uh, it may not happen. I'll tell you why. I, I Their website says that it's about 300 bucks per person per night. And I thought, well, it's a little steep, but eh, it's, it's probably doable. And that includes all this great food and the ayahuasca and this and that. Um, but before I really started promoting it to you folks, I wanted to get some final numbers. What's it cost altogether? Everything except the flights, you know, for the plant medicine sessions and, uh, you know, get a couple of massages and this and that and the other. And, uh, the cost is a lot higher. It's about 500 bucks per person per night. And that's a lot. Um, so for a couple you know, you're sharing a bungalow, you're going to end up spending, what, seven grand, something like that. Uh, plus the flights, close to 10 grand. I don't want to ask anyone to spend that kind of money. I, I think if you have that kind of money and you want to uh, have an experience with uh, the plant medicine, Rhythmia is a great place. And uh, I would have no qualms about recommending it but as far as having a gathering uh you know the reason i've been uncomfortable with this idea of having a get together for tangentially speaking listeners is that um you know i feel weird about the idea of people spending money to hang out with me um and uh um even though none of that money would be going to me the the fact that it would be that much makes me uncomfortable. So, you know, if if ten grand isn't a lot of money to you, then by all means, uh, Rhythmia is a, a great place to have that experience. Especially if you're not real comfortable with 
you know, going down to uh, Peru or, or um, Brazil and going into the jungle and, you know, that kind of situation doesn't appeal to you. Um, Rhythmia is more like a sort of a country club kind of environment, very, you know, manicured and comfortable and, you know, no, uh, you're not going to get attacked by monkeys or anything. Um, but anyway, as far as getting together with you folks, most of whom I imagine are in your 20s or 30s and aren't sitting on a lot of cash, maybe it's not the right the right situation. Anyway, I'm going to continue to talk with them about it and we'll see how it ends up. But uh, at the moment, I'm feeling like as, as positive as I am about the place and, and what they're doing Maybe it's not the best uh, match for us, but I will keep you posted on that. Um, It looks like I might go to Burning Man this summer. So if anyone out there is sitting on some Burning Man tickets that you're not going to use and uh, you haven't gotten around to posting them on Craigslist or whatever, uh, please drop me a line. Uh, I have a couple of friends who are interested in going as well. Uh, I know the tickets become available the closer you get to the event as people realize they can't make it after all and whatever. Um, but I just thought I'd put the word out there that, uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm interested in going. I'm going to be in that part of the country anyway in the van. Uh, so this might be the year to go. So if you have uh, extra Burning Man tickets, uh, I'd be happy to buy them from you at face value, which I guess is the, the custom for that. So let's see, what else? Uh, I was up near Yosemite a couple of weeks ago in the van. I forgot to mention this. Uh, I was getting gas and a guy in the gas station, I forget his name. Sorry about that if you're listening. But he said, hey, wait, you're Chris. That's the van. I was like, yeah. So that was the first van sighting, the first official van sighting. And I'm not even like actually out on the road with it yet. But uh, that was really cool. And uh, another thing that was really cool about that, aside from the fact that he's a great guy, he's uh, he's a parole officer. So he drives around a lot, sort of going, you know, between uh, meetings with his uh, parolees, I guess. Um, and so he has time to listen to podcasts. But he said that uh, this podcast is actually uh, pretty popular with uh, law enforcement people. Sorry about that. That was my email, not yours. Let me turn this off. Uh, and he, yeah, he said that, uh, other parole officers and police officers, a lot of them listen to the podcast. Uh, I was really gratified to hear that. I don't know why. I don't know why this podcast is popular with you folks, since I tend to give some shit to law enforcement sometimes, but I really, uh, I'm glad that it is. I know you're good people. Most of you, I know that, um, you have a really, really hard job. Uh, you know, I talk about how cool the cops are in Spain and how uptight the cops are in America sometimes. But I also recognize that in Spain, cops aren't expected to be giving mental health treatment, which you are in the U.S., uh, because the mental health system has been defunded over the years since Reagan basically started the trend of shutting down mental health facilities in favor of telling crazy people and their families to go fuck themselves, which is essentially the policy. They dress it up in better language, but that's essentially the policy. Um, So what happens? You've got the number one supplier of mental health services in the United States is the prison system. 
That's just true. Uh, the number one supplier of housing for homeless people is probably the prison system as well. When you've got that kind of situation and cops are expected to be the first line of uh, intervention with people who are having mental health issues, it's not only deeply inefficient and a waste of police officers' times, time, but it's also a dangerous situation because I don't know how much training police officers have in dealing with the mentally ill, but, you know, as a psychologist and my wife is a psychiatrist, I can say that uh, you can have five years of training and uh, it's not enough. In other words, the police are deeply unqualified to be dealing with some of the situations that they're forced into. And uh, so it's no wonder that things go wrong sometimes and that the uh, the outcomes aren't what we want. So I recognize that. And uh, so I hope any law enforcement people that are listening to this won't take me too seriously when I'm giving you shit. And the other serious issue here is that uh, cops in Spain and, and other countries where I've been and been impressed by the police... They're not coming out of the military as a lot of American police are. And so these guys go to the military. They're, they're off in Afghanistan or Iraq in nonsense, ridiculous occupation uh, operations uh, that are unjustified. The local people fucking hate them. They're shooting them. They're blowing them up. They're doing whatever they can to fuck over the occupiers, as you would expect. Of course, it's not the soldiers' fault. They just signed up. They thought they were defending the country. They thought they were defending freedom. They thought it was a good way to get a job, get some education, whatever. Their purpose was not like, let's go shoot some fucking Iraqis, you know? <laughs> Maybe it was in some cases, but generally not. Uh, and they come back from that situation, and they're suddenly police officers with a very uh, oppositional attitude, and it's no wonder they have an oppositional attitude. Police in this country uh, are put in a position of being oppositional. They're supposed to cite you, arrest you, whatever, if you break the law. It doesn't matter if you bother anyone. You went through that red light, doesn't matter. It was 2 o'clock in the morning and you could see a mile in either direction because it's a crossroads in the middle of the fucking desert. And of course, there was no traffic coming, but still you went through the red light, so they're going to give you a goddamn ticket. Or they pull you over and they smell beer on your breath. Well, they're going to give you a breathalyzer and then they're going to yank your license and this and that. Even though they pulled you over for a, a, a taillight that was out, you were driving perfectly fine. Doesn't matter. You broke the law. Doesn't matter that your driving was not impaired and you, didn't, you weren't swerving around or, or putting other people in danger. Doesn't matter. You broke the fucking law. That's the American system. That puts police in an oppositional position uh, with reasonable people who say, hey, I wasn't bothering anybody. Why are you fucking hassling me? So again, uh, as much as we are the victim of that, so are the police. Because a reasonable cop is thinking, fuck, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. What if this guy's brother is, uh, 
you know, a, a local politician or, or works for the police department. And this guy comes home and says, hey, yeah, this cop was really cool tonight. I went through a red light and, and you know, I had a beer in my hand and he didn't give me a ticket. Then the fucking cop gets fired. So anyway, I understand all that. Uh, okay, so one thing I wanted to to sort of talk about was uh, this recent situation with John McEnroe and Serena Williams, because I think it plays into the culture of outrage that I was talking about in the last Roma episode. If you're not familiar with what happened, uh, John McEnroe, he has a book, a book out. Uh, he was promoting the book on NPR and he he was um, interviewed by oh, someone, I forget her name. She's one of those journalists who has like three names, Lulu Navarro, Williams or something. Anyway, she said uh, they were talking about uh, Serena Williams and McEnroe said, yeah, she's definitely one of the greatest or probably the greatest female tennis player. Or, no, Lulu, Will- she actually goaded him into it. He didn't say that. She said... You have said that um, Serena Williams is the greatest female tennis player ever. And he's like, oh, hell yeah, she's she's great. She's you know, definitely the best ever. And and the journalist said, well, why do you say female tennis player? Why don't you just say tennis player? And McEnroe was like, well, um, you know, because it's different. If she, if she were playing men, she'd probably be ranked, I don't know, around 700 or something, maybe a little better, maybe a little worse. Um, and now that has turned into a big fucking outrage. He was on CBS this morning, I think. And they kept asking him if he wanted to apologize to Serena Williams. And he's like, well, no, why should, I don't understand why I should apologize. So it's, it's turned into this deal where it's taken as it's been taken as some sort of horrible misogynistic insult that he has said she's incredible she's an incredible athlete uh probably the best who's ever lived as a female tennis player but when asked you know why not just call her a tennis player he was like well yeah but if she played men she wouldn't be in the top hundred. Uh, does anyone disagree with that? Well, as it turns out, Serena Williams doesn't even disagree with that. Um, now this is weird. Now when I'm doing this on the iPad, it's I, I can't really pause it. Hmm. Cause normally this is where I would pause it and say, Oh, yeah, the woman's name, the, the journalist is Lulu Garcia Navarro. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she sort of goaded him into this thing. Anyway, so I'm talking instead of pausing. Uh, he said, yeah, okay, so what he said literally was, uh, he said, if she played in the men's circuit, she'd be like 700th in the world. That doesn't mean I don't think Serena is an incredible player. I do. But the reality of what would happen would be, I think, something that perhaps it'd be a little higher, maybe a little lower on any given day. She could definitely beat some players. Um, You know, that's not an unreasonable thing to say. Here, okay, here's, here's the exchange. Garcia Navarro says, 
We're talking about male players, but there are, of course, wonderful female players. Let's talk about Serena Williams. You say she's the best female player in the world. McEnroe says, yeah, best female player ever. No question. Garcia Navarro. Some wouldn't qualify it. Some would say she's the best player in the world. Why qualify it? McEnroe says, uh, she's not. You mean the best player in the world, period? Garcia Navarro. Yeah, the best tennis player in the world. You know, why say female player? McEnroe. Well, because if she was in, if she played the men's circuit, she'd be like 700th. Garcia Navarro. Really? You think so? McEnroe. Yeah, that doesn't mean I don't think Serena is an incredible player. I do. But the reality of what would happen would be maybe she'd be a little higher, maybe a little lower. She could beat some players. I believe she's so strong mentally, she could overcome situations where other players would choke. Um, but if she just had to play the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different story. Where's the outrage? Why are people outraged about that? She is great. Of course she's great. But she, the, you know, men's players are hitting the ball far harder. They play five sets in the finals. Women's play, women play three sets in the finals. If she were a weightlifter, you wouldn't say she's the greatest weightlifter in the world. I'm sure the top female weightlifter in the world is probably lifting, what, two-thirds as much weight as the top male weightlifter in the world. You wouldn't put say that the best female boxer in the world is going to beat the best male boxers in the world. It's a sport based on strength, tennis, uh, and upper body strength at that, mostly. How is it outrageous to say that the best woman in that sport would not be competitive with the best men in that sport. It's just a simple physiological fact. I, I don't see people agree with me, uh, you know, strangely. And this shows how how ginned up and created this whole controversy is. Someone, uh, an expert said, uh, if Serena were to play Annie Murray, she would lose 6-0 in five or six minutes, maybe 10 minutes. The men are a lot faster. They serve harder. They hit harder. It's a completely different game. Who said that? Serena fucking Williams said that about herself. She said she'd have her ass kicked by the top men's players in five, 10 minutes. She'd be out. Six love, six love. So clearly, you know, the fact that people are asking John McEnroe to apologize for saying exactly the same thing that Serena Williams has said about herself is ridiculous. This country's falling apart. Speaking of falling apart, we've been invaded. It's so strange. This country, the United States, has been invaded and occupied. And there are no foreign soldiers here. There are no shots. There are no bombs going off. But it's happened. The president of this country doesn't want to hear about Russian involvement in the elections. Doesn't want to hear about it. Doesn't want to talk about it. It's very strange. The, the State Department is gutted. The, the Environmental Protection Agency, gutted. There's nobody there. He, he hasn't hired people to run these things. The government is being shut down. The federal government is being shut down. And we're watching it happen. And meanwhile, we're talking about his tweets about facelifts and bullshit. 
women bleeding from their eyes and their jaws and their whatevers. And the country's occupied and being gutted from within. It's really strange. Really strange. How many people, how many Americans have died from terrorist attacks in the last five years? I don't even know. I mean, it depends how you qualify it. If you count these angry white men as terrorists, the number goes up. You count those kids in Newtown, the number goes up. Still, what is it? A few hundred? At most, a few hundred? If they pass this healthcare thing, I think a Harvard study just came out saying that I think it, I think it was 20,000 20, people would die unnecessarily from not having health care. Tens of thousands. But we're still talking about fucking terrorists. I don't understand it. Very strange. Very strange. Okay, that was my email again. I have too many computers going here. I got this one going. I turned off the email on one, and now it's on the other. Uh, and uh, hold on. Let me put this to sleep. Okay. So I wanted to uh, respond to some, uh, some Roma emails. So here we go. Chris, I'm 19 years old. I'm currently dating someone I've been with for two years. Had another relationship before that. That lasted about two years since I'm young and I know my current relationship will probably end at some point in the future, even though I'm very much in love with my current girlfriend. My question is, how do you find meaning in long term relationships when you're a young adult and chances are it's just going to end anyway? That is a really good question because it's a question that you're going to be reframing and re-asking your whole life. At the moment, you're asking it in terms of, I'm young, I know this relationship's probably going to end anyway, so how do I find meaning in it? Perfectly legitimate question. But you think it's a question about being young, and it isn't. It's a question about being alive and recognizing the impermanence of everything. Does that make sense? In other words... You think it's a question that's limited to this time in your life, but that's only because your experience is limited to this time in your life. And in fact, this question that you're asking is extremely profound and will extend throughout your life. Because it's all impermanent. Whatever phase you're in is a phase that only lasts a while. Whatever relationship you're in is a relationship that only lasts a while. Um, even if you're with someone for 20 years, as I've said before, there are, there is no 20 year relationship. There is a series of relationships with the same person that happened to have lasted 20 years. See what I mean? You'll change. He or she will change. If you're together for 20 years, it means that along the way, that sequence of yous and that sequence of thems have continued to want to be together for one reason or another. But the you and the he or she that are together 20 years down the road are not the same as the ones who started. Something just beeped. I have no idea what that was or why. But I fear that it's telling me that 
the battery on my iPad is running out. So I'm going to stop this right here and possibly come right back. Alright, I'm back. No idea what that what that ding was. No idea. So there's some technology in this room that's dinging. Never heard that sound before even. <laughs> so I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway, I was saying, um, yeah, that you're going to be dealing with this question of impermanence your whole life. And so the answer to the question is not how do you deal with the fact that you're young and then this is the situation. The answer is how do you deal with the fact that you're alive and this is the situation. It reminds me of a poem. I may have read this poem or recited this poem before. It's one of the few poems I remember by heart. It's by Randall Jarrell, uh, who was a poet and a literary critic and a novelist. I, I wrote a thesis about him as an undergraduate, really got into his work. Anyway, he uh, he wrote a poem that's called The Riddle, and it goes like this. What's the riddle they ask you when you're young and you say, I don't know, but that someday you will know the answer to? The riddle they ask when you're old and you say, I don't know. And that's the answer. I don't know. That was his suicide letter in a way. He died right after. That was the last poem he wrote. He was hit by a car. Um... It's unclear if that was suicide. Some people say that uh, it was just a terrible accident, but a lot of the people who were close to him say he was suicidal and he was out walking down an unlit, dark road in the middle of the night wearing black. Well, um, anyway, sorry to be so morose, but the point that he makes in that is that at a certain point in your life, I don't know becomes the answer. When you're young, you think there is an answer, and then you get older and you realize that I don't know is the answer. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, that my feeling that the trajectory of aging is in some ways learning to embrace ignorance in a way that... Uh, that has some sort of grace about it. Um, and I think that a lot of people, as they age, they go in the other direction where they're sort of desperately trying to um, cling to certainty. And they're very afraid of being wrong. They're afraid of uh, making mistakes, which, of course, say that in another language and in, in other words, they're afraid of growing. Right. So they get stuck because when you stop being wrong and you stop making mistakes and you stop admitting how much you don't know, that's when you stop growing. And if you're not growing, as Bob Dylan said, if you're not busy living, you're busy dying, right? So either you're growing or you're dying. It's kind of like, you know, this sense of uh, 
economies that have to always be growing. Um, I don't believe that's true of economies. I certainly don't believe it's true of species population levels. Uh, I don't believe it's true of our bodies, um, but I do believe it's true of our spirits and our minds that uh, we need to be growing, not getting bigger necessarily, but getting deeper, getting more subtle, getting more profound, replacing dead cells with the live cells, you know, whatever it is, mutations come about, we need to flush them out and get them out of our out of our thinking. Um, and we do that by recognizing that we've been wrong and by recognizing that there are things that are simply beyond comprehension, which makes sense, you know? No container, you know, take a jar. That jar is not big enough to contain a jar of that size. No jar, you can't fit a jar inside the same jar. Nothing is big enough to contain itself. And so why would we think that the human brain, the human mind, however you define those things, could possibly be capable of comprehending what it is. By definition, it can't. By definition, no system is complex or subtle or inclusive enough to comprehend itself fully. And I don't think any living thing really understands what life is. I don't think it's possible. Uh, I'm not sure how helpful that is for a 20, oh, 19, 19-year-old. 19 um, but I guess what I'm trying to say to you is don't worry about it, man. Give up. You can't lose if you don't play. And trying to... Stopping yourself from finding meaning in something because you know it's temporary is the definition of shooting yourself in the foot because everything's temporary. So if you let that interfere with your ability to enjoy something or find meaning in something, then your whole fucking life is going to be meaningless because the whole goddamn thing is temporary. Every relationship you have, every laughter you emit, every bit of pleasure you feel at a delicious dinner or beautiful music or anything, it's all temporary. So if that interferes with your ability to get into it, then I would say you're making the biggest mistake a person can make, which is not to say that it's not a very common mistake. But I think it's, I think the impulse has to be to go the other way, to say, fuck, this is temporary. This isn't going to last. So I really want to focus on this. I really want to enjoy this. I'm 19. I'm in love with this woman. It's not going to last. So I want to really enjoy it now. I want to really pay attention to her. I want to really focus on this, this brief moment in my life because I know I'm smart enough to know that it will pass like everything passes. So that, that should be the impulse. Live it more deeply because you know it's not going to last forever. Not, eh, this is meaningless because it's not going to last forever. Go the other way. Put down the phone. Put down the iPad. Go hiking. Go camping with her. Spend time with her. Really fucking live this moment. 
precisely because you know it's not going to last forever. That's the best we can do. And I think, I think you're, you're on to it. You're already asking the right question at 19. Good job, buddy. So really, enjoy it. You're in love. Woo, it's fantastic. Being in love when you're 19, nothing like it. Just don't get her pregnant. My real, okay, lots of, lots of stuff. And then my real question is, as someone who aims to live a detached life, how do you deal with the dark side that comes from that? By which I mean the possibility that by not attaching yourself to someone or ones or a place or even a culture ideology, you block something that can make your life richer and, as Milan Kundera would put it, heavier. Put in the basic form, is it better to live a lonely, empty life of freedom or a burdened but fulfilled life that is thoroughly entrenched in a community? So he, there's a long preamble to that question where he talks about uh, how he, he went to the Czech Republic and uh, was reading The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, which is a book I've recommended several times on this podcast and, and elsewhere. Uh, it's a book I read a lot in my 20s, I think maybe five times or something in my 20s. Um, and the basic idea of that book, uh, or at least the idea behind the title, the unbearable lightness of being is that there is this sort of essential conundrum in our lives between, on the one hand, uh, seeking lightness and freedom, and on the other hand, seeking uh, commitment and heaviness and solidity. Now, it might seem like, oh, of course I want lightness and freedom, but as this guy says, lightness also can be emptiness. It can be uh, lack of substance. It can be having, you know, a thousand acquaintances and no real friends. It can be having lots of lovers and no real love. It can be uh, a rootlessness and a, and a substance, substancelessness to life. Um, you know, and then on the other side, heaviness can be like, oh, I never left my hometown. I've all my friends I've known since I was a kid. Isn't that great? Yeah, but I've never been anywhere. I don't really love my life. I married my wife when we were 18. I've never been with anyone else. I think I kind of love her, but I don't know. How would I know? I've never been with anyone else. And, you know, lying in, be in bed at night wondering what your life could have been if you had, you know, gotten up and gotten out. Those are sort of the two extremes. And of course, we all, most of us live somewhere in between there. And so the question is, uh, he says, as someone who aims to live a detached life, how do you deal with the dark side that comes from that? Well, first of all, I don't deny it. I don't deny that there's a dark side that comes from that. I don't deny that having children, for example, uh, is probably uh, an experience that uh, would have enriched my life a lot more than I can even imagine. I don't deny that not having uh, a sense of rootedness to a particular place on the planet um, 
leaves me without an experience that is very meaningful for a lot of people. Um, you know, I read about American Indians, for example, who during the whole destruction of their lives, a lot of them, the Apaches and, and um, yeah, Nez Perce and others, were taken from when they you know, were finally beaten and into submission, the, the ones who were alive, a lot of them were shipped to Oklahoma where they uh, had this, these big Indian reservations. And so they were taking people, the Apache from, you know, what's now New Mexico, Arizona, desert, and shipping them off to Oklahoma. And a lot of them just died. Um, they died of heartbreak. They died of suicide and... If you read the accounts, like in the wonderful book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown, they died uh, from not being in their home. Not a structure, not a house, a place. That they were so much of the place that being shipped off to someplace else literally killed them. And... Uh, it's not that outlandish to think of. After all, as, as I've said elsewhere, you take a desert plant like a cactus and you put it in a jungle, it dies. Put it in a forest, it dies. There's no reason to think that human beings, some of us, are not of a place. Um, white Europeans seem to be different. We seem to be capable of just spreading all over the planet like some sort of invasive species and adapting to whatever place we're sent and just, you know, taken over. Um, but other humans find that much more difficult to do and they're much more um, specifically adapted to a place. Anyway, I read those accounts and, and I recognize something missing in me. I recognize a depth and a, a, a relationship with a place that is missing in my life and that I'm sure is very beautiful in many ways. So anyway, I don't deny it. I don't deny that my life is partial. But the thing is, all lives are partial. That's, that's the beauty of Kundera's book, the unbearable lightness of being. Just being means making decisions. And every decision you make, you're saying yes to this and no to that. Yes to her and no to her. Yes to travel and no to long-term roots. Yes to the freedom of not having children and no to the profound joy and love of having children. That's the way it works. Uh, you know, you can... It's that the East Indian monkey trap I, I think of often. You know, if you haven't heard me tell the story, it's I was sitting next to this guy on a train in India, and he told me that his grandfather was a monkey hunter in, uh, I think it was up around... Um, uh, above Calcutta, uh, up in the mountains, Assam, I think is the, the state. Anyway, uh, 
he, he said that his uncle used these monkey traps that were, he would make a little wooden box and cut a small hole in the box that a monkey could get its hand through the hole. And then he'd put a mango in the box and nail it to a tree. And monkeys would smell the rotting mango and a monkey would come up and reach in through the hole and he could grab the mango. He could feel it, but he couldn't get his hand out as long as it was holding on to the mango. And so some monkeys would let go of the mango, but some monkeys would never let go of the mango. They'd hold on to the mango, even to the point where they could hear the the hunter coming through the forest. They still wouldn't let go of the mango. And the hunter would come up and see the monkey and shoot it and eat it. Well, that monkey wouldn't let go of the mango. That monkey refused to make a decision. The decision is you can hold on to the mango while this hunter comes walking up to you. Or you can let go of the mango and run. What are you going to do? He thinks he's not making a decision. Not making a decision is deciding. So if you're in a little town and you're like, oh, I don't know if I should travel or I should stay here. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Ten years goes by. You don't know. Well, fuck it, man. You decided. You told yourself you weren't deciding. You told yourself you were preserving this indecision. But, you know, you stand at a crossroads long enough. You might as well build a house and live there. Because that's where you've been for 10 years, 20 years, right? You haven't decided all that time. Don't kid yourself. You decided. You just didn't admit you decided. You didn't admit you were deciding. So you're the fucking monkey with your hand in the box. Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, tell you what, the hunter's walking up the trail there. You don't know what to do another five minutes and you're fucking dead. You, you made your decision. So, uh... There is no answer to this question. There is no life that contains everything. There is no life that doesn't require sacrifice of some option. You know, you, you didn't go down that road. Well, you went down this one. That's, that's what life is. Make decisions, live with it, and don't, you know, and don't deny it. This is one of the things that I think people are fucked up about, you know. People have kids who are like, oh, my God, you can't imagine how much you're missing. You, you've made a terrible mistake. Ah, fuck off, right? I'm not running around telling people with kids, oh, you, you know, you fucked up your life, man. You're stuck with those kids. You, you got to pay mortgage and pay college. Uh, I'm not telling anyone they made the wrong decision. And it's funny how, how, you know, there are these default settings. Like, I think maybe it was even on Aroma or an email I answered something. Somebody was like, how do you explain not having children? Well, how do you explain having children? Well, who says that it's the not the people who don't have kids that have to explain themselves? Right? Having kids, that's a fucking crazy thing to do. Given the amount of money you have to spend and the the... Uh, loss of freedom and and f- uh, flexibility and you can't fucking quit your job you got to worry about taking care of all this bullshit all this you know goddamn nike shoes they want and all this crap that they're doing and you know you got to tr- sort of try to teach them to be healthy in a totally unhealthy world you got to somehow teach them to think through all the bullshit that they're hearing from their friends and their TVs and their computers and their teachers and their president. I mean, that's a big fucking job. 
good luck to you if you want to do it. If you want to do it, more power to you, and and I, I hope you're successful. But, you know, not choosing to engage in that, I don't see how that's the outlandish, ridiculous decision. So anyway, that's my answer. My answer is, uh, you know, how do I deal with it? Well, I, I deal with it by acknowledging it. And by acknowledging that, you know, people who've made other decisions haven't necessarily made the wrong decision. I made the decisions that I've made, and so it goes. And who knows what's right, what's wrong. I don't even think there's a way of really thinking about that. So anyway, that's how I deal with it. Okay, let's do another one. Uh, This is... um, I'm running, hoping you can shed some light on a subject I have a hard time understanding, and it seems like no one I ask has any idea either. Why is it that families seem to get along so much better in other cultures, but in America it's so hard? I'm in my late 20s and recently divorced, so I moved back in with my parents, and it's really hard. I don't know why, though. They're both really nice people. I didn't have a hard childhood or anything. We have a good relationship, but living together again is ridiculously tense and difficult. Uh, I've done some traveling in my life and lived in another country for a while, and it seems like everywhere else people live with their parents into their 30s, and there aren't the same problems that arise in America. What, what is it that we have that makes it so difficult culturally? It seems like it goes both ways, too. It's not just the child that has trouble, but the parents, too. I have no idea why. Similarly, my parents start to pull their hair out whenever either of my grandparents are staying over. But there isn't any major trauma or anything that sheds light on why. I've come to the conclusion that it has to be something with family and American culture, but I have no idea why. What are your thoughts on this, Josh? Interesting, interesting question, Josh. And I think you're right. I do think there's something particularly American about this craziness. You know, one thing I was thinking about recently, I'm not sure to what extent it applies here, but we take the generational shift, you know, generation gap, as a given, like it's always been that way, you know, since time immemorial, old people have said, well, that's not music, that's noise. And, you know, since time immemorial, young people have said, oh, you're old, you don't know how the world works, and what the fuck do you know? And, you know, I sort of accepted that as a given as well. I thought, yeah, that seems like that would always be the case. But, you know, that is, you know, I do all this reading about hunter gatherers and stuff, and it turned, turns out like in hunter-gatherer societies there really isn't any generational shift the world that young people live in is the same as the world that the old people lived in same jungle same animals uh same rivers same you know whatever things work the way they've always worked and so this constantly shifting baseline where each generation is born into a world that people even 20 years older don't understand that's not part of the human condition since time immemorial that's part of modernity and it's something that's getting worse as 
that constant cultural and technological shift accelerates. So uh, it's not surprising that we find it to be stressful and difficult um, because it is not part of the human condition. So that's the first thing I would say that, you know, this is, this is a, a function of, of modernity, not of being human. The second thing I would say is as far as America goes, maybe that quality that I just pointed to is more heightened in America because we are so wedded to technology and we're so, uh, culturally speaking, we're so sure that new is better, new and improved, and younger is better, you know, make me young again. Uh, what's that line from Californication? Pay your doctor very well to break the spell of aging. Uh, so we're, we're very wedded to this notion that uh, new and young is better. So that sort of empowers uh, the rejection of other ways of looking at things that are more established. Um, you know, and we're also very wedded to this idea that, uh, you know, you got to like be on your own two feet and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you're living with your parents in your 30s, then, you know, you're a loser and, uh, you yeah, know, all that kind of stuff seems to be more uh, accentuated in American society. You know, having said that, I'm not sure to what extent that's good or bad. I, you know, one of the things in Spain that surprised me when I first got there, I've talked about how sexy I found Spanish culture to be or Barcelona culture anyway. Um, I remember when I first got there, walking home one night, late, you know, maybe two in the morning or something, clubs were closing and there were people fucking like, you know, just in doorways. I would walk by, you know, in the city, just walking down a city street and like, oh, Jesus, those people are fucking right there. You know, that guy's getting a blowjob. Look at all like, holy cow, these Spanish are really horny. This is great. And then after I lived there for a while, I realized it's not that they're hornier than anyone else. It's just they all live with their parents. So there's nowhere to and, and it's not like a car culture like America. When I was a kid, we were fucking in the car, you know. In Spain, people don't have cars. Or if they do, if you're in the middle of the city, where are you going to go? You know, it's like it's, it's, there's nowhere private anyway. So um, I'm not sure that living with your parents into your 30s is such a great thing. And I'm not sure it's good for your character. I'm not sure it's good for your development as a person. Uh, I know economically there are reasons for it and so on. But honestly, one of the things that helped me with meeting Spanish women was that Spanish women are pretty sick of Spanish men, at least the ones I met. You know, if you hang out in an Irish pub in Barcelona, you're meeting a lot of Spanish women who are kind of done with Spanish men, at least as far as casual sexual friendship goes um, because these guys live with their mothers and they expect if they hook up with a woman, they expect the woman to make the bed and make breakfast and do the laundry. And like, Jesus, dude, I just want to fuck you. I didn't want to be your mommy, you know? So uh, my point is that I think there's a lot to be said about moving out and being on your own. Now that doesn't mean you have to fucking get a mortgage and, you know, buy into the 
bullshit American dream either. But, you know, you can get a room in a shared house for a couple hundred bucks a month. And, yeah, you're going to meet people who live in the house. You're going to meet their friends. You're going to learn some social skills in dealing with other people. Uh, it's a it's a phase of life that I think is really valuable, actually. Um, and I think living alone is overrated. So if you're young and you can't afford to live alone or you just don't want to live alone, I think there's a lot to be said about living in a shared house. I think it's a, a pretty cool way to live, especially when you're young and, you know, you're still trying to figure shit out and find your social group. It's pretty cool if you live in a house and, you know, your roommate is a scientist or a, a surfer or uh, an actor or a comic or whatever, you're going to have an insight into that world that you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, so I'm not sure living with your parents is such a great thing anyway. So maybe the reason that they're weirded out about it is that they're like, Jesus, kid, come on, you're 30, get, you know? give us some space. Maybe they want some space. Maybe they're like, ah, we want to like have orgies. And now this fucking kids live in here. We can't have our orgies. We've been waiting, you know, all this time for the kids to move out. And now we can't have our goddamn orgies. Who knows? Who knows? But I can say that my relationship with my parents, uh, improved dramatically when I was no longer living with them. Because you get these weird power things, you know? Like, oh, you're under my roof. You're They've got a point. If they're paying your rent, you're not paying, then there's that's kind of infantilizing. So I hear what you're saying. It's unfortunate that uh, there is this intergenerational tension. But I do think that there's a point. You know, if you look at other animals... Uh, other primates, particularly uh, a lot of, um, well, basically all uh, mammals, I believe, all social mammals, um, when the, either the males or the females reach sexual maturity, they leave the group they were born into. It's it's known as exogamy. So, for example, humans chimps and bonobos are all female exogamous, which means that the females, upon reaching sexual maturity, leave the group they were born into and move off into another group and mate with the males in that group. So it's a way of avoiding uh, uh, genetic drift, incest, where uh, you've got problems where the same people, the same individuals are mating with one another generation after generation. So Humans are female exogamous uh, in general. Uh, you look at uh, gorillas, they're male exogamous. The, the, the adult, when male juveniles reach sexual maturity, the alpha male pushes them out to the point where he'll kill them if they don't leave. Uh, baboons are also male exogamous. So in any case, my point is that there's sort of a biological imperative to get the fuck out of your house when you become an adult. It's built into us. And, uh, wow, a hawk just flew by the window out there. That's cool. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I'm not saying that we're at the mercy of our genes, but I do think that there's a reason um, that we feel that that um, sort of feeling crowded 
And there's a reason your parents probably feel it. I'm sure you're a good dude, um, but why not pay two or 300 bucks to, you know, get a room in a house with some other people, uh, you know, roughly your age and, and give your parents their space. I don't know. That's, that's my take on it. Okay. Let's do one more and then I'm going to be out of here. Uh, by the way, I'm going to interrupt this, play some music probably for the audio only version, but I'm not going to do that for the video version because of YouTube uh, restrictions. I don't want to get into any weirdness on YouTube. So if you're watching the video, you're not going to hear the music. Uh, but uh, And I can't say what the music will be <laughs> right now because I haven't decided yet. But I'm going to go back and insert a couple of tunes. I do know what it's going to be. This guy sent me some music that was really good. It was his buddy. Um... Let me see if I can find that, and then I'll come back to this. I'll, I'll say what it'll be. In fact, maybe I can even play it on both. Uh, yeah, okay. It's his friend. His name is Adim the Artist. Right, and this is Stephen Boitron. Stephen Boitron. Yeah. Anyway, his buddy... Uh, he's Adim the Artist. He has a wife now and a baby on the way and could use some... Uh, some exposure. So anyway, the guy's name is Adim the Artist. His album is The Owl. Uh, I listened to it online and I really liked it. I, uh, I, bought, uh, I bought it on iTunes. And I think the song I'm going to play is The Apocalypse. Again, I'm not going to play it on the video, um, but I'll play it on the audio only. Because uh, even if he's cool with it, I don't know if his record company would be cool with it. I don't know, whatever. I don't... Don't want to get lawyers in my life, you know what I'm saying? Um, anyway, so the album is The Owl, and the artist is Adim, A-D-E-E-M, and his name is Adim the Artist. <laughs> Thank you. 
an alleyway by Sparky on the net with the lover's card reversed there in the center next to death. She's reacting to the images what they represent when we're driving home she carries on about her animal spirit Last uh, email from Ireland. I am a very helpful and positive person who always tries to help people around me and stay positive. I'm not perfect myself, but helping is in my nature. My issue is with my parents who have been married for over 25 years. A lot of those years I feel they have been unhappy. They are currently not in a happy relationship and being at home with them makes me sad as I see how they are. My father is an alcoholic who drinks two to three times a week like it's normal. He seems to run away from all his problems and trying to talk to him about almost anything is like pulling teeth. I've tried to advise him to stop drinking or to take up a hobby, but it never works. I'm at a loss at what to do. 
my father simply can't let go of family issues from the past and I can see them eat away at him daily. My mother's not perfect, but she's open-minded and at least tries to help the situation. Quite recently, a dreadful family matter has occurred, which I can't go go into. But this has also consumed my father, who is helping the issue, but is running away from other problems. He still drinks a lot. He's never abusive or anything. He's a good man. But I'm afraid it's only a matter of time before his lifestyle and his habits catch up with him. When I look at him, I see an unhappy, depressed, scared man who only finds happiness at the bar drinking. Any advice would be much appreciated. Oh, and my mother also listens to your podcast. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, let me just state for the record that this is unqualified advice. I am a psychologist, but I'm a research psychologist. I don't know you. I haven't met you. I haven't met your mother. I haven't met your father. Uh, so totally pulling this out of my ass. It's worth what you paid for it, which is nothing. Um, but I'll just say some things that popped out of my head. He drinks two to three times a week. Like it's normal. Dude, I drink more than two to three times a week, and I think it's normal. Now, I don't know if he's getting stumbling drunk two or three times a week, but if I drank two or three times a week, if I had like two or three beers a week, that would be a, a significant reduction in my alcohol intake. Uh, and, and you're in Ireland? I don't know, two or three times a week. I don't, I don't think that's particularly abnormal, unless he's got a drinking problem, unless he's getting shit-faced and you know, breaking windows and wrecking cars and, you know, getting in fights. Uh, I don't see how drinking two or three times a week is a big deal, having a few pints of Guinness. Uh, I've tried and tried to advise him to stop drinking. Well, I don't know. Is it your place to advise him just what to do? You're 25. So what's your dad? 50? 55 your dad's my age um again i don't know if you say he's got a drinking problem you you seem to be you're definitely implying he has a drinking problem but as far as actual data i see he drinks two to three times a week like it's normal if i had a 25 year old kid telling me how to live my life i you know your dad keeps his mouth shut, but I'd probably say, fuck off, kid. You know, go live your life. Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> I'm not, what, you know, what, what are you doing? You're 25. You're telling me how to live my life. I don't know. Um, you know, and, and you say uh, he's never abusive or anything. He's a good man. Well, then what's your problem with him? Why does he need to change? Why are you putting all this pressure on him? Uh, you say he still drinks a lot. I don't, I, I don't know that I agree with that assessment. Uh, it's only a matter of time before his lifestyle and his habits will catch up with him. I got some news for you. It's only a matter of time before 
lifestyle and habits catch up with all of us. I don't know if if this is accurate, but I get a feeling from your email and and it's very possible I'm projecting, so forgive me if I'm wrong, please. Um but it sounds to me like you love your dad and your dad is You know, the years are catching up with him. And you're an adult. You're 25. You're in your early adulthood. And one of the things that happens in early adulthood is we start to see our parents as people. As opposed to these mythical semi-demigods that parents seem to be. Or, or devils, depending on where we are in our childhood. Early years, they're demigods. And then adolescence, they become satanic-like figures uh but around you know early adulthoods when you start to see them as people and when you see them as people you see their vulnerabilities you see their sadnesses you see their failures you see their you see their looming demise and it's scary because part of you still sees them as semi-godlike figures who will always be there And when they're not there, when you even think about them not being there, it's fucking terrifying. Because then you're next. Then there's nobody standing between you and oblivion. And one of the ways we deal with that existential despair is by... putting a lot of attention into how they live and getting very judgmental about how they live and the things that they're doing that may be detrimental to their health. And it's confusing because you feel so justified. You're so justified in saying, you know, dad, that's bad for you. And this is bad for you. And you're, yeah, and you're right. You're absolutely right, but you're leaving out a couple of things. One of them is your father's an adult. Your father's made a lot of decisions on his own. Some have panned out. Some haven't worked out as well. But in any case, he's an independent man who has a right to his own dignity and his own path. And as much as I'm sure he appreciates your concern for him, I think you need to recognize that some of that concern for him is actually concern for yourself. That a lot of this intense... uh, intrusive, judgmental energy that we often hold toward our parents is in fact fueled by our own existential terror at being left alone here on this planet with no daddy and no mommy to take care of us. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Believe me, I'm 55 years old. I feel that. I get so angry at my father 
for not taking better care of himself. It's something I don't talk about on the podcast. There are certain parts of my life that are too personal. I don't want to get into um, in a public way um, because I feel that other people have a right to their own privacy and dignity. And just because I talk into a microphone doesn't mean that I have a right to drag them in, in front of it. Um. But I, I can really relate to that. And as I say, maybe I'm projecting, maybe you're not feeling this, but I think it's a common thing to feel. And there you do come across as a little judgmental and a little holier than thou in your email. And I think that an important stage of our process of maturation is this recognition that our parents are just people and they're going to make mistakes. They've always made mistakes, but hopefully, as in your case, their heart's in the right place. They're good people. They're kind. They're generous. They're compassionate. And that's really all you can ask. And the fact that they're going to die is not an affront to you. It's not something you have the right to get indignant about. Or I have a right to get indignant about. The fact that they're going to abandon us. It's funny, people who, who are talk, you know, experts in grief, they often say that one of the things that uh, people find most confusing is how angry they get when someone close to them dies. And it's weird. You wouldn't think you'd get angry. But we do get angry because we something's been taken away from us. And in the case of a parent, it's something precognitive. It's something that's always been there. Something that some protection, some warm blanket over us that we didn't even know was on us until suddenly it's pulled away and we feel exposed and cold and vulnerable and terrified and part of a, the response to that is, fuck that. Who took that? Where'd it go? What the fuck is going on here? You, you feel angry. And I, I get it, man. I, I have felt very angry at watching my father's health deteriorate and very judgmental about how, you know, he should have done this or he should have done that or uh, you know, eating better or exercise more or blah, 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 whatever it is. And also I have to recognize that a lot of what I get angry at him for are things that I share. Uh, you know, he's my father and I'm very similar to him in a lot of ways. And so as a sort of a deflection from thinking about my own failings or my own uh, laziness or lack of discipline or whatever, I externalize it and I get all pissed off at him for those very things that make me uncomfortable in myself. So I would ask yourself, are you doing that? Um, you know, maybe do you have a weakness for, for drink? Are you, uh, not as happy as you could be? And, and are there reasons for that, that you're not confronting? Are there things in your life 
that you are reflecting off him and focusing on him rather than looking at yourself. You know, Carl Jung made a big point of how much we can learn from people who annoy us because the fact that they're annoying us tells you that something in them is resonating with something in you. And so really look at what it is that you're finding so annoying and you're going to see yourself if you look honestly and deeply enough. So that's where I would go with this. I didn't know this session was going to be all about relationships with parents. I, I, you know, I, I get these and Natasha reads them and forwards them on to me thinking, you know, these seem interesting or they're emblematic. And then I put them in this file and I don't really look at them until I turn on the mic and start talking. So I didn't know that 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 was going to be the theme today, but, um, it's kind of interesting because the, the last episode of tangentially speaking, uh, that came up Monday. I think this will go out Wednesday. Uh, was uh, Tal Ruspoli's mother, Deborah Berger. Definitely check out that episode if if you miss it. Um, so sort of the the parental thing seems to be in the air this week for me. Anyway, uh, I'm going to end it there. I hope that was helpful and interesting for the rest of you. Uh, I don't really, it's the whole, this whole podcast thing is weird. I get it with the guests, the Roma thing. It's still very strange to me that anybody gives a shit what I think about anything, but I, I don't know why you do. Is it because I wrote a book? Is that, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know what it is. Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks for watching you Patreon people. Thank you for uh, your contributions. By the way, if you're interested in seeing this video and you haven't, you're not on the Patreon list. Um, I, I don't, this isn't like bonus content for people who are given 50 bucks a month or something. I just put it up for everyone who's on Patreon. So even if it's only a buck a month or whatever you can comfortably afford, uh, you'll, you'll get access to the videos. And then I'll probably make them available later, you know, maybe a month later or something. I don't know. I'll do that for people who don't, who aren't on Patreon. But I figure there should be something for the Patreon folks. Because, you know, it's not just the money. I know it's a hassle to go on there and enter your credit card information and your address and blah, blah, blah. It's a pain in the ass, I know. I Believe me, I order a bunch of shit online, so I know what that's like. Anyway, thank you so much for your support and for giving a shit. And, uh, yeah, this is going to be fun. And the main reason I'm doing all this stuff is to get used to using the camera so that when I'm on the road, we can do some cool stuff from the van and, uh, get some interesting shots. I'll probably sit up on top of the van and do some episodes from up there. And I'll definitely mount the, the Mevo on the dash and get some, some dash cam stuff going and whatever. So, uh, Thanks for listening and uh, take it easy, y'all.